Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today we want to talk about a something that I was called goofy over in the presuppositional apologetics Facebook discussion forum, which is one of these discussion forums which sometimes I don't know I'm a part of. Hey, you know, by the way, congratulations. You've, you've been wanting to troll. Yeah, well, you know what, though? I try, but I don't know that I count. It counts because I think of a true troll as people like when you put your thoughts out there and they seek you out, which often uh, happens to you. Yeah. I like, I kind of put myself in the mix in a group. I, I, this does not match any of your achievements. Yeah. Yeah. I got called a, a wolf in sheep's clothing over the weekend. And also, my favorite, though, is uh, that I and Joe Scarborough were criticized together in a, uh, and a tweet. So, uh, you know, not often do I end up with Joe Scarborough, but I guess in this tweet, in this person's mind, I did. So, anyway. Well, you know, I, I think that you are, you know, you and Joe Scarborough would probably have interesting political and theological conversations. Uh, we might. At any rate, uh, I, by the way, I did see your response when someone said they thought you were goofy. You put goofy, actually. I actually, <laughs> I actually put, I found a picture of goofy. Looking like he was asking a question. Goofy, probably. He might be my favorite Disney character. I was never a big Disney fan, um, but uh, Goofy, yeah, there's something about Goofy. What about Scrooge McDuck? Now, I'm go- uh, Goofy's like, to me, a precursor to the Big Lebowski. Yeah. The, the Goofy abides. He's, you know, it's funny that there are people that argue that that the entire plot of Inception was stolen from the show DuckTales, where there were the three nephews, Dewey, Huey, and Louie, whatever, they figured out how to get in Uncle Scrooge McDuck's dream to get the code to his safe. There we go. <laughs> so it's very, you know, who knows? I mean, I think that seems far-fetched, but possible. My, I love the Looney Tunes. My Looney Tunes were actually really funny because they were they were being written most for, for adults. Adult, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. To kill the wabbit, to kill the wabbit. There's like there's an entire uh, episode of Imaginary Worlds, which is a great podcast that examines basically the guy's a professional NPR guy but this podcast he does on his own and it's all about the imaginary worlds we construct in 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 literature and film things like that and what they say about us and actually this was one of his episodes was all dedicated to the backgrounds of Looney Tunes cartoons because like you look at like the Roadrunner and and Wiley Coyote those are majestic southwestern kind of like yeah, they really are, and they yeah. talk all about like the, the the guy who designed them. It's really interesting. It was fascinating, fascinating right. stuff. So, all right, good. All right, go. anyway, could talk cartoons all day. So what 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 started this brutal theological battle that you're in? I think somebody posted this comment from the end of last week or the weekend where the Pope and he does these daily kind of catechetical audiences. He usually reflects on some Christian teaching or a few verses of the Bible. And he did one in which I will actually pull up the Christian Post news article. He did one in which he said to a group of uh, people that were there that... Well, they were Catholic pilgrims, right? Right, they were, they, were, uh, they were Catholic pilgrims and basically said that uh, God cannot be God without man. And that was the thing that basically freaked people out. Uh, people thought it was very controversial. Now, again, you know, if you rip it out of context, if, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll put a link to, on the show notes for this, but 
he's trying to make a point. And if you read the whole context, it's not quite as uh, – it, it makes a little more sense. Yeah, I always also wonder, I mean, so he – I, well, he probably has done enough. Life. So he speaks, you know, he, he's, you know, t- t- uh, Spanish is his uh, native language. He has, he's of Italian descent. He's a Jesuit. He's a Jesuit. So he speaks, you know, I mean, he speaks English as well. You know, sometimes you do wonder what gets lost in translation. But they have pretty good, um, yeah, I know. <laughs> translators, right? Yeah, that was my first disclaimer. But no, actually, I think it's a fascinating concept. Yeah, and the fuller context of the piece, as I pulled up on my iPad, the formatting looks a little different, so I'm a little disoriented, but there we go. Okay, now I understand it's in two-column form. Uh, so uh, speaking, uh, he was speaking on the theme, God's paternity, wealth spring of our hope, uh, while he made these comments to pilgrims and, and other faithful travelers. What's the difference between a pilgrim and a faithful? Like, if you just come from Genoa or something, you're just a faithful traveler. Yeah, you're kind of, you know, you're you're not, uh, you haven't, you know, you. It's part of the tour package. <laughs> <laughs> if you're so a pilgrim, my, you this was where you this is the whole thing you wanted to do. But my faithful traveler, you you showed up at the tour. <laughs> it's a kind of a drive. It's a it's a drive by homage. You know, you just kind of pass through. <laughs> All right. Well, I will I will take that and say uh, <laughs> until we can get the Vatican for comment, I will accept your explanation of that designation. Uh, So he says, Dear brothers and sisters, we are never alone. We may be distant, hostile. We may even profess ourselves to be without God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us that God cannot stay without us, the Pope said, according to a summary of his comments provided by the Holy See press office. This is just like a TMZ. There's another quote. So he will never be a God without man. It is he who cannot stay without us. And this is a great mystery. God cannot be God without man. The great mystery is this. So he he said a lot of other interesting things. I thought this was uh, very moving. And the people in the presuppositional apologetics group, which are people that are this is the school of apologetics founded by an early Westminster seminary guy, Cornelius Van Til. He was very close to J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary, and just like social, often institutions continue the social psychology of their founders. This, you know, it's a pretty combative place at times, to say the least. And this Facebook group carries the spirit of Van Til in many, many ways. And so they were talking about how awful the statement was. And yeah, if Van Til had a cell phone ring, it would be onward, Christian soldiers, most likely. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. He's a very interesting, interesting yeah. figure. Yeah, these are people who sometimes are sorry they're the Inquisition no longer <laughs> exists. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, some, yeah. sometimes some of the but anyway. Are, so yeah. okay, well, that's that's framed. But that's, some of my best friends are presuppositionals. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's uh, well, let's talk about what's at stake here. First of all, uh, it's uh, it's bold. Well, other than we've we've defined faithful travelers. Other than that, we got that. We got well, that that's done. That's at stake. We might have to retract. And also, <laughs> we've already we've just burned a bridge with the presuppositionist, uh, yeah, which, which was which we're which by, was a very warm relationship. At any rate, there are people. But, by the way, I just have to say, and I feel like we've been really good about not doing this this episode, but. I did like I I I was watching Trump's press conference with the Romanian <laughs> president. See, I thought we were going to get through this. I was, I, but I love how Trump's always. It's the same speech, the same comments wherever we're looking. We have a fantastic relationship with 
Romania. It's been great. And of course, it's only going to get better and stronger as we work. And I'm very impressed. Your president is amazing. We've had a fantastic conversation. Like you just insert world leader here, insert name of country here. <laughs> it's just the same speech. It's great. It's entertaining. Yes. So they, again, the, we've never had, we have a fantastic relationship with the presupposition. <laughs> we actually don't, but there we go. It's hard. It's, you know, the, it's just hard to put that all on a t-shirt. It is. Yeah. yeah. It is. It, yeah. is. it is. It is hard to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, well, I think that that part of this is, you know, Bart's uh, concern about, I mean, people say that at least Bruce McCormick would say, I think others would say that hundreds of years from now, that the thing that Karl Bart will be most remembered for is his doctrine of election. But not, not just getting rid of double predestinarian sensibilities in the sense of, well, I mean, there's only double predestination with regard to people. So for Bart, the wrong way to understand predestination is a traditional Western way, which you see in Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, you know, through the whole tradition where there's two kinds of people, you know, sheep and goats, and God sort of chooses it out in the beginning. And you've got goats outside the church, or, you know, sheep outside the church and goats within the church. And, but there, but there, there are predestined from all times two sorts of people, right? And Bart says, no, there's only one kind of person. And looking at places like Colossians 1 and Ephesians and drawing on people like Athanasius, he thinks that, that there's only one reprobate. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not just the subject of election, but it's object. He's both, you know, he's both God's chosen one and as fully God, he's the choosing one. And he also chooses for himself our reprobation, our curse, our judgment. So the only one person who's cursed eternally is Jesus, choosing to to bear the brunt of our wayward wandering and, and, and sort of taking that cause up as his own. And, the, then, and it's eternal because he takes it up for eternity. Right. I and mean, if yeah. God makes it, Doesn't it's, mean an eternal, it's an eternal decision. Right. So, That's what makes it eternal. Yes. Yeah. And so there's not a time when God is, when there's sort of a, an abstract God that, that determines God's identity forever. And, you know, part of what Bart worries about, and I think that this is worth worrying about, that Sometimes when you read, I'll just think of, you know, I'll just take the Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin. You read that, you know, when they talk about the elect, the faith, you know, we deal with the loving father of, of Jesus Christ. The reprobate deal with, sometimes it sounds like a different God. <laughs> and then so, and sometimes Deus Epsconde, the hidden God. Right. And so suddenly, the, here's the problem with that, like, and I think it, it, it does diminish what Bart sees as significant eternally. If God chooses to be God in no other way than in and as Jesus Christ, it seems like there's not a God behind the Father of Jesus. That, that, that And even Athanasius would say that the Father can't be the Father without the Son. Like, well, yeah. but, but, but psychologically, I could tell you all day, Brother Boer, don't worry about that hidden God. You're the elect. Right. You're dealing with the good guy. <laughs> I think of that one Simpsons where Bart plants a little microphone in Ned Flanders' kid's bedroom. And, you know, the, the little twin, like, fundy kids. It's like, do you want a happy God or an angry God? And they go, happy God, happy God. <laughs> so I could tell you all day, well, you deal with happy God. But, 
But you're, the nature of human psychology, you're saying, well, I wonder, am I really dealing with that God? And if there's really two gods and there's two types of people, how do I know I'm not the other kind of person dealing with the other kind of God? And I think that that, for him, eviscerates what he thinks is the sum of the gospel. In, in beginning of Church of Max 2, 2, he says, election is the sum of the gospel that God chooses to be for us. Well, I think, you know, from a biblical perspective, part of the problem is people tend to look at God's judgment and his mercy as two different things. I mean, I think that's probably the part of the brilliance of of, of Bart because he, he does see God as one. And that, you know, it's interesting. We often, we break up Romans chapter one. You know, we talk about the just shall be, you know, live by faith. Uh, and this is the revelation of God's righteousness. But then, you know, in the next verse is God's wrath is being revealed. So this this idea of the revelation of Jesus is is a kind of judgment as well as a, the good news includes a kind of judgment, but it's it's not two separate messages. Yeah, and I think even Bart takes a while to figure to 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 get this square in his own thing because if you read Church Dogmatics two one, which is like in thirty six or thirty five or something like that, if you look at that volume. The justice and the mercy are sort of played off each other in dialectical tension. When you get to like volume four, it's really clear that the justice serves the mercy. Right. And they're not in a kind of dialectical tension in the same way. There's an ordering and a priority. Right. Right. And I think that you're right. I mean, I think that that's, it, it is a challenge to be a, an artful, and by artful, I mean in the best sense, not in the way that we might say someone's testimony is artful or something. But I mean, to be an artful, by, no, by being careful. Um, seeing the forest, you know, for the trees, kind of reader of the Bible. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I, I was involved in this discussion with this person who basically wanted to, uh, you know, Marcion always comes back. If, for those of you who don't know who Marcion is, Marcion was uh, a second century uh, Christian who eventually was uh, kicked out of the church at Rome because he had trouble, and, and again, I won't get into all the complexities of it, but in essence, he thought that there was a good God and a bad God. The bad God was the God of Israel. Jesus is the new God that's emerged. It was kind of a Gnostic system. But he had his own version. Matter of fact, part of the reason why we have a canon is because people had to make a, a Bible in response to his because his uh, Bible uh, did not have any of the Hebrew scriptures. A little it, bit of Luke, a little John, bit of Luke, Gospel of John, Paul, and but, Paul. <laughs> with all the Jewish stuff taken out. Well, it's interesting. Do you know who was a huge Marcin fan? Uh, I could name people, but go ahead. Dostoevsky. Oh, well, okay. That's interesting. And it's very, you know, and Harnack, like basically looking at an attempt to like in, in the post-war period, in the interwar period, World War One, or II. Gosh, that's, so let's get this right. A late 19th century Russian and, you know, a late 19th century, early 20th century German, two cultures that had really high views of the Jewish people. We don't want to alienate our Russian listeners right now. <laughs> No, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, in other words, yeah, it is, it is, but I, but I think Marcin, for him, it was this fear that, that also, that if you, if you put law and grace in any tension, creative tension, that, that law, the law would always swallow up grace. Right. And I think existentially, if you look at how human beings work, there probably is some truth to his concern. It doesn't mean that, that that's the, and it doesn't mean you read the Old Testament, right? It doesn't mean that. Well, that's the danger. That's yeah. also the danger, which you and I go back and forth on some about our neo Lutheran friends who, who want to collapse everything into law and grace, which, uh, 
which is which is just an, a, a bad reading of scripture. But I uh, might I might not I might not think it's a bad. Reading I think it's I think it's I think it's a reductionist reading of scripture. But anyway, well, you know, what are we without? Read, agree, what, agree, what, agree. what are we without a reductionism? <laughs> reductionist. I don't know what we are. It's hey. the best reductionist. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, it's what's interesting to me is that part of what the Christian church has always – I think one of the dangers we've always had, and I certainly uh, – uh, there's part of me that can drift this way too, is that we sometimes – we want the God of philo- – we want to keep the God of the philosophers, but then throw in the New Testament or throw in the Bible. So this idea of – all these speculations about who the divinity is, apart from revelation, presupposes a privileged position that none of us have. In other words, what God, what God is unto God's self, to speak about that definitively. I mean, I think part of the things that I like about the Pope's uh, statement, I mean, it is provocative, and I would not have said it that way. But that what is— What would you have said differently? Well, I, the, the, the only God we know is the God who relates to us as humanity. In other words— we can't, you know, it's it's kind of like, well, what was God doing before creation? Well, he was creating hell for people who asked that question. No, <laughs> that's not, not, that's what Calvin, people said, Calvin said. There's no, no, we don't have any reference that he actually said that. But no, I think there's a sense where with the God, the only God we know is the God who reveals God's self and God's saving acts and God's acts of revelation. So in a very real sense, the only God we know is the God who is, our God, the God that revealed uh, God's self to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the father of Jesus. I mean, that's that's what we that's the God we know. Yeah, but I think it, I think that there is a tendency to not take a text like Hebrews one that seriously. Like you know, where you know, in many ways, God's real and stuff. But now, I'm very I'm very serious about Hebrews. <laughs> yeah, you know, in this now in this day, finally, See, I've got that tattoo son. right here. Is my Hebrews yeah, tattoo? I like that. <laughs> This notion that 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 Jesus is the the, the apex of the re, the revelation of 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 the God born with two in Scripture, and I think functionally, a lot of Christian theologians don't act like they believe that. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, Charles Hodge in his Systematics looks at this sort of definition of God in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the immortal, invisible, God only wise kind of thing, and says it's the best definition of God ever, and then starts reflecting on it for like 200 pages before he ever gets to the Trinity. So so clearly, Jesus isn't, can, like, he can say a lot about God without ever having to make reference to right. Jesus. And right. I think that, that what the Pope is saying here, I think, is a corrective to the the tradition's tendencies. And, you know, it's interesting, Colin Gutton, I think, in his book Act and Being t- pulled out some statements that John Paul makes about Hellenistic philosophy that are troubling. That, that he makes some generous statements about other great philosophical and religious traditions, but basically privileges, almost treats, uh, comes close to treating, and it doesn't quite go this far, but, but you could see how it, it, it could be read this way, almost treats the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition as that was the Old Testament for the Greeks. Well, yeah, I, and you can see that in Justin Martyr and well, so yeah. forth. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, you can see it in Clement of Alexander. There's a little bit of, and it. there's not a parallel to the Hebrew Scriptures. There's no in the Christian tradition. That's the primary revelation. Well, you know, and, and certainly the when it, whenever Christianity has a humanist tendency, I mean, that philosophically, or you know, when, when there's an appreciation uh, for God in human achievement, 
you end up with with things like that. And and on one level, uh, to say that all truth is God's truth, to say that wherever you see beauty, true, absolutely, good, absolutely, that's, but that's different. That's different than what by taking uh, the story, our, the story of salvation, away from God's initial personal relationship with a man who becomes a people, and then with the Messiah of that people who is his son. I think that's, I, I agree 100% with that. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I thought was beautiful in this um, in this passage from Benedict, I mean from Pope Francis, he says, Indeed, calling God with the name Father is not to be taken for granted by any means. We are led to use more elevated titles that seem to us more respectful of his transcendence. Instead, invoking him as father places us in a relation of confidence with him, like a child who addresses his father, knowing that he is loved and cared for by him. This is the great revolution that Christianity impresses in the religious psychology of man. The mystery of God, which always fascinates us and makes us feel small, no longer makes us afraid, hmm. nor does it crush us or cause us anguish. This is a difficult revolution to accept in our human heart, so much so that it is true that even in the accounts of the resurrection— it is said that the women, after see, having seen the empty tomb and the angel, fled, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. But Jesus reveals to us that God is a good father and says to us, do not fear. That's, I think that's beautifully written. It is, it is beautiful. You know, um, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast. We've, we've done a few. So this could, we could, we are guilty. 130-something. We are guilty of repeating stories periodically. Um, when I was a young child, we rented a house that had been like a gift shop store. And so my bedroom had a wall full of shelves, you know, those kind of almost checkerboard shelves that you put little, you know, have little knickknacks and things. And so, uh, you know, I'm probably five, four or five, maybe the oldest six. I had a reoccurring dream where one of the, the an arm or a hand would come out of one of those shelves and try to get me. And it was terrifying. And I would, you know, wake up and run, go running and find my parents, you know, terrified. So it wasn't like the friendly cousin it in the absence <laughs> of the hand in the box. Well, this is interesting. Now, I don't know. I, I, for, my memory says my father said this to me. And if, if he did, this was absolute genius on his part. Uh, and it could have been my mom who said as well. I don't remember. But they said to me, well, maybe, you know, and I think they were just trying to get me to go back to bed. But they said, that's not a scary thing. That's God's hand protecting you. And I had to dream again. And it woke me up, which, you know, that's part of why you have recurring dreams to wake you up. And I, I, it's one of those formative moments as a child where, you know, there was no terror in the night anymore. There was comfort. And so I think that's part of Knowing if it's the hand of the father or the hand of the loving parent or the hand of the one who came and died for us and lives for us, then that that makes a world of difference. Did that? Did you watch the Adams Family in between when the dreams were resolved? I mean, could you see cousin it? I, you know, I think that was is cousin it the hand. Cousin it was the hand. Right? I thought cousin it is the furry. The thing. furry one. Then what's the hand? I don't know, but uh, thing. Thing. That's a thing. thing. Now that this was pre Adams Family, those dreams. I always liked the Adam Sam and the Monsters as a kid. So I was thinking, I wanted to share one other thing that, uh, that 
I was reading something about Robert Jensen's view of the pre-existence of the sun. And Jensen is always brilliant and never um, – he's always audacious. So. But in his systematics, he writes that in John's prologue, we read that in the beginning was the word and that the word became flesh. However, in that same gospel, we find this word himself testifying to the, to the mode of his existence. Before Abraham was, I am. It is precisely the aggressively incarnate protagonist of this gospel's narrative who says of himself, who says this of himself, and he puts his antecedents to Abraham in the present tense. Now, it's interesting because this guy who has written a dissertation on, Jen- on Jensen says, um, says this, that basically Jesus comes, for, for Jensen, the event of his resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection that occurred in the middle of history determines the content of the future. And it recursively breaks into any or some points of time of history as the future and liberating power. So he, Jensen thinks like when you see Jacob wrestling the angel, you're seeing Jesus come back from the future. And no, August, this would be contrary to Augustine and lots of the other fathers who would not want to say this. But, and then he says this, that, that the risen one appears in apocalyptic fashion. Um, what certain persons saw after his death was a reality of that future. So Jesus is risen into the future that God has for his creatures. And then Jensen says, this whole view requires a revisionary conception of time. Time is more like a helix. And what it spirals around is the risen Christ. Wow, that's powerful. You know, I I think um, I have great sympathies to the Christian mystic tradition and also uh, often some of the most meaningful interfaith interactions I've had. We've often found common ground about what are the mystical teachers of each of our tradition tell us about God. But I think there's always a danger in mysticism, particularly the modern forms of it, of what we really want is not a God that's transcendent that we cross over into. But we really just want our own experience to be deified and that we basically are looking to God as an equal. You know, Jesus offers friendship. So there is a sense of the paternal God that uh, that the Pope's talking about. But there's also another dimension of equally, even more intimate, this idea of Jesus offers us friendship. But in the great discourse, in John's discourse, Friendship, if you love me, you will do what I have commanded. So there's a sense where the intimacy that we can have of God, the intimacy that God offers us both in that paternal love, but even a more deeper I-thou relationship and the friendship is a function of our willingness to live and be a vessel of his love. Yeah, but that I think that willingness is only created by belovedness. Like, I mean, God's love doesn't seek out um, what it wants, but it creates <laughs> I mean, this is you know. Well, but I think, uh, well, I think, I'm just going with Augustine on that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it. I think it. I think it. Can you want to go contra Augustine? I can, you go, can get, go. I know it's taken me years. It's taken me years hey. of therapy to say Augustine may be wrong. <laughs> but, but I do think it, what's interesting about what I found moving about the Pope's piece, but then when Jensen's passage is like, what does it mean for Jesus to shape how we see time? And I think that, like, we just tend to think of things in in, in linear linear ways often, or they. But right. I love that picture of uh, of a helix. You know, it's very, the rock. You know, the rock of ages at the center of the helix. Well, Bill, uh, the question isn't whether 
God is human, but whether we are, but I guess you and I will give ourselves passing grades for today. <laughs> Just for today. Just for today. I will remember you. Will you remember me? Don't let your life pass you by. Weep not Darkness deepening.